into chapter 9. I misspoke last week. I said that the Gideon cycle came to an end. But Gideon's story doesn't end until his son is dead because Abimelech sits in between. He's not a judge. He's not an oppressor. We're meant to see what happens after Gideon as relevant, and you're going to see why. So we're going to read this morning. We're going to talk about the whole chapter, but it's 57 verses, so we're only going to read verses 1 to 24. Here it is. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am bone of your flesh. Sorry, I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, which, which gods and men are honored, sorry, by which gods and men are honored, and go and hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have, ri- have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice also in you. But if not, let fire come out of, from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. And Abimelech, oh, sorry, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Okay. So, we have Abimelech, named aptly my father the king. He then comes and he 
finds a way to finagle and maneuver his way to becoming king over this section of Israel. It's probably not the whole of Israel. We know that, but it's probably this region. The judges were generally regional, not national leaders. And so after this, after what we've read, what happens for the next 30 some odd verses is this. Um, when God sends his spirit, and also we'll talk about this evil spirit that God sends. How is God sending an evil spirit? Is that right for God to do? Um, what, what we know it does is it causes animosity and enmity between Shechem, these leaders, and Abimelech. And what ends up happening is they then start to undermine his rule. And they accept another guy who's come in using the same method as Abimelech. His name is Gael. And they say, you should be our king because you're actually closer in kinship to us than Abimelech. And we don't like him anymore. So when Abimelech hears about this, he comes and he besieges, he, he raids the town. Actually, he lies in wait outside of Shechem. And he destroys and kills not only Gale and sends them all, drives away this usurper, but he also will, will kill people, everyone in the city, by all accounts. He burns the tower in the city down, killing a thousand people in it. And then he salts the ground, which is literally and symbolically a way of saying, let nobody ever even use the city again. And then he turns to a town nearby called Thebes, and Abimelech will do, try to do the same thing. He besieges it, and when everybody goes and hides in this tower, he goes to employ the same tactic he used in Shechem, and he tries to burn it to the ground. But as he is at the base of the tower, a woman, namelessly, nameless woman, drops a millstone, probably 15 pounds, on his head from X amount of stories up, and it crushes his skull. And before he dies, he says to his armor bearer, his servant, run me through and kill me because I don't want everyone to know and remember me as the man who a woman killed. And thus ends the time of Gideon. Now, this story is not over. The reason that we don't hear, see, when a judge ends, when the story of a judge ends in the book of Judges and a new one begins, there's a formula that the narrator uses. At the, end of the, at the start of a new cycle, it says... And Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so and so, a nation comes and oppresses them for X amount of years. And then they cry out to God, and God says, and then God raised up a judge to deliver them. But that formula is missing here. So what we're meant to see is a couple, two things. First, there's a generational sin issue. What Gideon has done is create a son that is following in his footsteps. So that's a warning, and we're going to talk more about that. But it also shows what's happening within Israel. That for the first time, we're clearly seeing that as the family breaks down in Israel, as the family unit breaks down, Israel itself begins to decay. And now the oppressor is not outside of Israel, it's inside of Israel. And it's going to happen increasingly. And next time with Jephthah, and we see how he sacrifices his daughter. And it's slow, not slowly, it's quite rapid. We're going to see the decay of the Jewish family. And as that happens, so do the people of God fall apart as the family decays. Now, one of, one of the things that we're seeing as well is the further they move away from God, the further from peace Israel goes as well. And if you really break it down, look at what's happening, you see it's actually a very modern problem. Abimelech comes as, a, as the epitome of me, the individual. I will assert myself to accomplish what I want with my life and I will use everyone if I have to, to accomplish it. And me, so we have this me spirit, the individualism coming. But then he meets Shechem, and Shechem is this prototypical us. And you see them saying, well, we want a king, and somebody's going to do the best thing for our tribal interests. And so we have the collision 
of me versus we. And today, aren't we seeing the same thing? Doesn't the individual increasingly have this problem in the culture where we say, I think I am such and such a sort of a person. I identify in this way. I have this disability, whatever it is. And as a result, you must not only acknowledge that, but you must bend to what I say. You have no right to tell me I am not what I am. And so we have the power of the individual pressing against the culture, saying you must bend to the will of the individual. And so in this very small version, you see it here happening in Shechem in Israel, where the me is fighting with we. And under this melody, if you want to call it that, a cacophony of a battle, you are seeing something else. And you may have heard me say this before, if you're musical, you know this, that the bass, when you play a bass, oftentimes, especially when those guys go by and they're Honda Civics, and they're, uh, you know, the cologne is flowing out of the, out of the windows, and, and the music is really loud, you'll you remember that the bass, you often hear the, you feel the bass more than you hear it, right? You don't even see it, but it's like boom, boom, boom inside you. And running through this scene, and through all of Judges, through all of Scripture, is this bass note. It's maybe unseen, but it's heard, it's felt everywhere. And it's this, it's this note of God at work in the chapter. You see, the name Yahweh never shows up in chapter 9, ever. In fact, ever since Gideon crossed over the Jordan, if you were here, you'll have to go back and listen if you weren't, the moment he crosses over the Jordan, God falls silent. And yet, that doesn't mean he's not active. God continues to run, and you're going to see him here. He's active in this passage. And so we're going to see these three things. We're going to see the collision of me and we and then the I am all running through. I was going to call me ourselves and I am, but I didn't want to be that cheesy. So let's begin to look at me first, this thread of the individualism running through it. And here what we see is Abimelech. And we're going to do a bit of a, a character study on him. I was talking earlier to, to someone here, and if you're a guy, you know this, and mothers as well, and women as well, but I only know my context. doesn't matter what you think of your father, you end up being a lot like him. Good or bad, you end up being a lot like your parents. And I will make this claim, and you can discuss this in your community groups this week with the discussion questions. I think Abimelech hates his father. I think he hates him. And yet... As much as he may reject his father, listen, you're going to have a hard time disproving me only because he kills his father's line and disassociates himself from it. But as much as he may rebel against the fatherly line of his, he's just like his dad. We see him, he's learned how to handle people who dishonor him from his father. He's learned how to live. He's never seen trauma dealt with properly. And as a result, he's coming out as Abimelech in this way. And remember, Gideon is the first of the judges who shows a real selfish side. So Othniel, the first one, is basically perfect, right? Othniel has nothing negative going on. He, he's always committed to God's call on his life. Ehud comes next, and although he's deceiver, he's never, there's never a hint that he wants to take, rob, rob God of his glory. If anything, he's trying to deliver Israel. Deborah then comes, who is generally depicted as very noble. Barak, who may be depicted as uncertain at times, but... There's never a self-interest in him. But then we have Gideon, who, yes, he is faithful. Yes, he does what he's called to do. But he's also a guy driven by vengeance, by pride. He's chasing the crown. He's chasing resources and money. Um, And if you don't believe he was king as of chapter 8, then we have a problem because right now his son comes and tells the people of Shechem, there's no no option to stay as you are. You will be led by either them or me. 
See, the assumption is now in Israel, there will be a king over you. You've got to choose which one. It's either the 70 sons or it's the guy who's nearer to you in blood. And so Gideon has this side to him. And Abimelech has the same thing. He's not only, he manipulates, right? He does come and say, you know, he's half and half. He's half Jew, half Shechemite. And yet he says, don't worry about my father's side. I'm you. I identify with my mother's side. I am a Shechemite like you. And then he becomes, well, first they accept him, and he is then funded by Baal, the temple of Baal. They take money out of the temple of Baal to fund his coup to become king. And then he becomes terrifyingly brutal. He takes each of his brothers and kills them on one stone. Now, it's a little unclear what this means, but here's what we think it probably means if you just read the plain text. There's a stone where you commit sacrifices upon, right? You, you, do, you give sacrifices on it. And what it looks like he must have done was he's not only seeing this as a sacrificial thing, maybe back to Baal who's funding it, I don't know, but he takes one by one 70 men and kills them. Try to imagine, though I know you probably can't, I don't think anyone here has done that, but try to imagine the amount of stamina and anger and hatred it must take to take one man at a time and kill 70 of them and pull the body off, come here. And they're your brothers, kill him. Next one, 70 times. There's a brutality and an anger that is running through Abimelech, a hatred. He's trying to erase every aspect, I think, of his father's side of his thing. Now, why? Why would there be such rage? Is it possible? We don't know, right? We don't know. It doesn't say he had troubles with his mother, he wasn't hugged enough, um, you know, none of that. All we know is he's illegitimate. And we know how illegitimate sons were treated even to this day, but certainly in the ancient time. Is it possible that as a young man, he's raised with 70 brothers who he knows will inherit and he won't? 70 brothers who say, who the heck are you? You're just the the concubine's son. He knows he has no future. He knows he's marginalized. He knows he's being told he's nothing. And so one commentator will go on to say he is driven by this to elevate himself out of his marginal future to, to grasp something else, to say, I'll get them. I'll show them. And so this rage is coming from somewhere. And we know, much like his father, he is very image-focused. And you know how you know this is because he only speaks three times in chapter 9. The, the first and last time are significant. The middle time, is, it seems like a throwaway, but it's not. It's, it's when he's telling his soldiers how to behave. You know, do what I'm doing. But other than that, the first time he speaks is about his image. I am the right guy for you, which is ironic, isn't it? A guy who is completely driven for his own selfish needs, is saying to the corporate group, I'm for you though, right? Sounds very political, doesn't it? Um, so he does that. So the first time he speaks, he's image-driven. The last time he speaks is when he's dying and he says, I can't let the world know that I was killed by a woman. Image-driven. So here's a man who is focused. He, is it possible he's been told his whole life, you're nothing? So he needs to now carve out an image that will change that. I'm not that. I'm more than that. I will rage against the dying of the light. And he's trying to see so focused on who he is and what he's going to accomplish. And so, after this happens, we have, after he becomes king, we have this fable, remember? And this is the thing about judges. When their eyes are taken off of God, they become brambles. And Jotham, the youngest son, escapes this butchery, this massacre, this, coup, this purge, Stalin-esque purge. And he, utter, he utters this fable. And the fable's important. Again, you'll talk about that in your community groups. But 
This week in our, in our Tuesday morning study, somebody brought up a uniqueness about thorn bushes. So I started to study them, and I found out something. First, the Hebrew word that is used here doesn't just mean any old thorn bush. It literally refers to something called the buckthorn. Now, that's what it looks like. That comes up clear enough. Um, so it has leaves in season, but it has these berries. But here's the thing about the buckthorn. The, the fruit that comes off it is poisonous. It's toxic. The bark is toxic. And so, what is it here? it's actually referred to on, on the Ontario Wildlife website. Um, it's referred to as a starvation food. So birds won't even touch it. Birds will not eat it unless they're on the verge of starvation because it, it causes severe cramps and uh, diarrhea. It's a mess for humans and for birds. So here's something that's quite interesting. Here's a people that are so desperate to be led that they are willing to take the starvation food. And it's also interesting that only the bramble is interested in being king. Is it possible that maybe the others are focused more on what God has called them to do rather than the acquisition of power? See, the fig tree is saying, I've got other things. My job is to sweeten the world. The vine says, my job is to cheer the world. The, what's the first one? Uh, the olive there is there. And again, olive oil, if you know anything about ancient culture, had all sorts of benefits. They're so focused on what they're called to do, it's only the bramble that says, yeah, I'll lead you. And you have to wonder why. And then he says, if you want, if it's in good faith, you know, come and you can rest in my shade. Listen, thorn bushes don't have a lot of shade. And if you do have, you know how close you have to get to a thorn bush to get to that shade? Close enough that you're going to get stuck. So here's the irony again. He is, they want something they can never get from this thorn bush. And he wants something, but what is it? He wants to rule. Humans will always seek a king. We always do. This depends on what we put on the throne of our heart. And thorn bushes will always seek to stick. That's what they do. And so Abimelech is being shown to be the personification of a bramble. That's what he is. He's just a guy who wants the power. He wants it, but he's going to stick you. It's a fatal attraction. If you remember that movie, I don't suggest you watch it. Terrifying. There's a bunny and things involved. But it's a fatal attraction. They're both attracted to one another, but to their doom. They're, it's going to end in death, is what uh, Jotham tells them. Now, here's a warning for us now as parents and as children. As a parent, you are not accountable for how your child lives afterwards. You can do all you want to be the perfect parent. Your kids will still reject the church, potentially. They still grow up to be criminals. They may grow up to be wonderful pagans. You are not accountable for everything they do. However, we know the fingerprints we leave on our children. And so we're accountable. We have to raise them well. And Gideon wasn't so focused, apparently, on his sons because he's got this group of guys who are at each other's throats. But as children, you cannot blame your parents. You choose what to do with the life you've been given. And so we're both being told there's, a, there's an accountability here. And yet we can't avoid the generational sin that we're seeing. Abimelech is a product of his father. And Shechem is increasingly a problem or a product of the family. And so we as the church, we are responsible for providing, doing what we can to model good families in our community. Because as families go, so goes the culture. It's just a matter of time. Which is why, I, I, I know, we can cut this out of the sermon if we want, but when I choose who I am voting for, I'm not saying you do this, you vote with your conscience and scripture. My first vote is not what color is on the screen. I vote on which one is going to preserve the family as best as possible. That's what I worry about. Because I'm a pastor who has to deal with the broken families every week. 
and I see the damage of fathers who are negligent, who, women, who mothers who are the same, who kids who have no respect, I see it. And we're seeing it all through here. And the, the, what it does is it will not just pollute your family, it's going to pollute our city and our region and our country. And so the families are important, and I think we're being shown that here. So if that's the case, we move then to point two. The me necessarily affects the we. We get into to the culture. It's interesting that when Abimelech comes to them, to the leaders of Shechem, to try to persuade them to, to make him king, see what he says? Which is better for you? See what he's doing? He's appealing to their self-interest. What's better for you as a group? Corporately, what's best for you? And you see, it's no longer what the scriptures say, which is what Israel should be saying. Shechemites aren't necessarily Christian here. It's a, not a Christian city, and then it's taken over and so on. Here's the, the, the problem. The individualism of the individual begins to be the individualism of the group. So what happens is you take a person who's only worried about them, and, if, and when you have a room full of them, even if it's in the church, then you have a church that is committed not to the good of the, of the city, but of this tribe, this people. And so when COVID hits, something I noticed is something when COVID hits, the church was really quick to mobilize and defend our personal rights about gathering. But where were we when our senior citizens were dying of loneliness and exposure and were just, uh, where were we? We were really defending our personal rights, right? But we were very slow to go out and ask, forget about our rights. We are, it is well with our soul. God is in control. He runs the church. He will preserve it. Our job is to now go and help the others to, do, to preach the gospel to them and so on. And I worry that the individualism of the culture is becoming the individualism of the church and it turns into Christian nationalism. This is what matters more than anything. So I worry about that, and you see the, impl- the fingerprints of this on Shechem here. Now, it's a significant, move- significant movement because I think I said this at the start. Israel was always a country made up of 12 tribes gathered under the headship of Moses and then Joshua. And now with no head and with no central area of worship that they're all going to because the tabernacle is in Shiloh, it seems, but it's no longer, there's no coordination, there's no head. These tribes, rather than being united for a cause, are beginning to fragment and showing splinters of tribalism. And as this is going to carry on, it's going to get worse, and it's eventually going to reach its peak after David with Solomon when when the nation splits in two with tribal distinctions. But you see the hint of it showing up here when Shechem is asked, what's in it for you? Not scripture, not Israel, but you. And you're seeing it infect them. Now, God then sends this evil spirit. Isn't it interesting? I'm going to talk about it in the last point more clearly. But God sends this evil spirit in to cause animosity. And I'll, get to, I'll deal with that directly. I won't skirt that question. But first, we don't know what they do exactly. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is that the leaders of Shechem that gets under, them, under their skin and says, you know what, we don't want this guy anymore as our king. We don't know. But what we do know is what they do. And what they do is they first they set up, uh, they set up men, ambushes along the roads to, to rob caravans as they're going by and travelers. And you think, what's that? This is what is it's actually a big deal. Because when they do that, they are disrupting commerce. Right? They're disrupting the commerce in the, in the nation or the region. And what they're saying is, I don't know if Abimelech can keep us safe. He can't even protect the trade coming in. The economy is hurting, protection... This isn't the guy for us. And they begin to undermine his rule. So when a guy named Gale shows up and his family, who's closer in kinship, he's not half Shechemite, he's full Shechemite. They say, you know what? 
this is a better thorn bush because he's more like us. And isn't that interesting how we do it? We look at the political parties and we say, he's for us, isn't he? He's not perfect. He's got some thorns, but he's for us. She's for us. It's the wrong approach. And I won't get into all the nuances there. But they're seeking thorn bushes rather than God. Remember what Gideon said in chapter 8? I won't rule over you. God is your king. So much for that. Forgotten already. One generation later. Now, they, they um, have this, this battle, of course. Gideon will come. Or not, sorry. <laughs> Freudian slip. Abimelech will come. He will crush them. And what we have then is this battle. This me and this we battle. That's what the fight is. When Gael meets Abimelech on the field, the field of battle outside of Shechem, that is ideologies clashing in the form of humans. And who wins? None of them. They both end up destroyed. And this is part of the point you're going to see at the end here. The point of the whole story is that evil eats itself. Evil by its very nature, it's member Martin Luther, that we are in curvatus inse. We are, sin is, is human man turned in on himself. That rather than looking out, we look in. And then, of course, remember starvation, what happens? Your body starts to eat its own resources. And this is what happens when we turn from God. We think we're free. You think that if you shed the Christian worldview and the, and the restrictions of the scriptures, you think, now I'm free to be me. And you don't grow, you shrink. Because now you're consuming your own. And that's what's happening here. This is the point of the story, is to say, the more Israel looks away from God, they look into themselves, and they just eat themselves alive, bit by bit by bit. As we untether from God, we are not free to sail, we are only free to drift. Now, so we have these two fronts, individual and we, me and we, and we're fighting. Now, where is the I am? Where is God in this? Um, I said it earlier, Yahweh is never used in this, in this passage. The name God only shows up a handful of times, and most of the times, it doesn't refer to the God of Israel. Um, only three times, at the beginning, the middle, and the end, surprise, surprise, God shows up and is, is in some way being told, we're being told by the narrator that God is at work. He's still here, even though it doesn't look like it. He's still active. The first time is when Jotham is giving his fable. He says, God is here to witness what you will say. So God is a witness. So we're told from his small p prophet here that God is present. He's watching. And what you're doing is being watched. The second thing we hear is that he sends this evil spirit. We'll talk about this in one second. Then we're told at the end, his ju- the, the whole passage ends with his final uh, summary. This is what the whole story was about and what God was doing. We'll get to that. But let me deal with this evil spirit. When it says, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. What does it mean? Is God the author of evil? Should God be doing this? Is it right? Let me use a, uh, start with a story to help show this. And if you don't know, if you've been here long enough, you know I'm, I have an old soul. Um, it's dusty and everything. And I love the Twilight Zone. Remember the 1960s, the Twilight Zone? I love them. And there's this one called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And it's, on, it's in the first season. And here's what happens in the story, generally speaking. There's a nice Maple Street. It's a beautiful any town USA, you know, nice, beautiful Leave it to Beaver Street. Everybody's, it's a Saturday. They're washing their cars. They're waving at each other, you know, perfect. But then all of a sudden, the power goes out. The street loses all power, not just the homes, but the cars. Everything, there's no power anywhere to be found. So they come out onto the street and they're asking questions. What's going on? What's going on? And a kid happens to say, you know, I have a comic book that says that when the aliens come, this is what they'll do. 
So now, they're like, what are aliens? So everybody's kind of nervous. They don't know what's going on. Remember, this is the 60s when we're just thinking about going to the moon, and it's, it's, a, it's a troublesome thing. And then all of a sudden, while they're chatting, one guy's car starts. It's like, oh, why is his car starting? And they start persecuting, they're yelling, what, why is your car starting and not ours? What's, what is it about you? And then somebody's light comes on in another house. Why is the light on here? And then they start fighting. They start arguing. Everybody's starting to fight. You're in on it with the aliens. You're in on it. You're in on it. Eventually what happens is they kill one of the guys. They shoot somebody. And, this, and, the, and the scene fades to black with the street in chaos, with everybody running around and beating each other up. It's just mayhem. And then it fades the last words of the of this story. It goes up, and you see there's two guys who are apparently human, but they're in a spaceship, and it's the aliens. And the aliens say this to one another. Understand the procedure now? Just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers. Throw them into darkness for a few hours, and then you just sit back and watch the pattern. And this, is, this, pattern, is, uh, sorry, this pattern is always the same, with few variations. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. And all we need to do is sit back and watch. Well, then I take it this place, this Maple Street, is not unique? By no means. Their world is full of Maple Streets. And we'll go from one to the other and let them destroy themselves. One to the other. One to the other. One to the other. And then, Rod Serling, I won't do the voice, but I want to. <laughs> he comes up, you know, in his beautiful suit and his little dark brow. I love him. Here's what he has to say. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill and suspicion can destroy. And thoughtless, frightened search, a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own. For the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the twilight zone. Now, what he is saying... And how this points to what we're talking about is this. You would never listen to that story and then blame the blackout for the chaos on Maple Street. You would say, no, no, they were always a barbaric people. Humanity is barbaric. In fact, we were without power for seven days or six days in, at Christmas in Ridgeway. And I'll tell you, if you followed the Twitter page for the Niagara Power, you would have seen the rage that came on within minutes. I'm dying over here. Where the heck are you? Why didn't you see this coming? You guys are rotten just after the money. This is, I'm not suggesting there's aliens. <laughs> I am suggesting we're rotten to the core. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. So when we ask the question about what's going on here, is God doing something wrong? Michael Wilcock, a commentator on, on Judges, says, here's what we know about the end. And it's not on the screens. I just, I'm just doing it. The guilty are punished. The innocent are spared. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God distinguishes. He contains the evil. Within the boundaries, it runs its course, but beyond it, it cannot go. And what we're seeing is God is coming in and saying, this evil will do what it's caused. This is what evil does. It eats itself. It will lead to their destruction. What I am doing is I am bringing justice to evil. He brings justice to the two evil ones. You'll notice it's actually brilliant when you read this chapter. The writer is... Genius, obviously, the Holy Spirit, what do you expect? And when he starts, he says very clearly, I'm doing this, what Jotham says, this is God doing this to bring judgment on you for doing what you did to Gideon's family, for, for Abimelech, and to the people of Shechem. And as a result, you're both going to be con consumed. The rest of the region won't be affected, but you too are going to eat yourselves alive. 
And so what God is doing is he is doing just that. And in fact, he says it. It's justice. The very last two, the second last two verses, 55 and 56. This is what we read. Thus God returned, I love the wording, he returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the of men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham. Jotham. Now, the word return is important. If I'm at home and Amazon delivers something that is not meant for me, I send it back. What I'm saying is, thank you, but it has no place here. I will not accept it. This is the Christian worldview. The only thing, the only worldview that offers this response to evil is Christianity. It's not secularism, it's not Buddhism, it's not Hinduism, it's none of them. Christianity alone says evil is permitted to run its course. However, God will not allow it to complete what it wants to do. It wants to end up destroying everything, but he will return the evil back on them, see? He won't accept it. He'll take it and then turn it back upon them. And you see the justice in this chapter subtly, but you may have picked it up already. Here we have a man, first of all, if he is a judge or if he's an, uh, an oppressor, he only lasts three years, the lowest term of anybody in the judges. God tolerates him for the shortest time. Then he has killed all of his brothers on a single stone. And what ends up killing him? A single stone dropped on his head. Not just that, we know he comes from a woman, as most of us hopefully did, and, but he gets his power from his mother's side. What ends up killing him? A woman ends up killing him. And so you see the justice of God, poetic and otherwise, saying evil will have its way, but not all its way, that God will turn evil into justice. And this is what's more wonderful. At the end, when, all, when Abimelech is finally dead, it's not a great fanfare. All we read in 55 is this. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. When justice comes, you can have peace again. You go home. Justice always results in peace. Every single time, it results in peace. And this is why this points us towards the cross. Because on the cross, me and we are at battle, and Christ accepts the death of sin. It eats itself, it, it, it will consume, it will die. And on the cross, our selfishness, be it personal or corporate, is at war and is put to death. He absorbs the death that we deserved. And as a result, what comes out of the cross? Peace. And that we can go home. And it's only because of Christ. And so we see in this story here, I want to make sure I read my notes because, you know, I don't use them often. And I'm afraid I'll miss something. When the wrong... Sorry, we got that. Justice is found only in Christ. On the cross, sin is punished and love is revealed. So when we focus on we and me, we die. When we focus on the I am and we're seeking his interests, we find peace. And this is why you'll have no peace so long as your primary... Listen, if you don't have peace, it's because you've forgotten the gospel. It's very simple. If you don't have peace about who won the election, it's because you think it matters more than who's on the throne. Very simple. If you think that you lose... Your, and we all do it. We do lose our peace. We lose our peace at times and we're human. But God says... I'm trying to show you all through the judges that every human king will fail. Every human king will fail. All through the book of Samuel, all through the books of kings, he's showing us our kings are just pointing to that fact that human kings will fail, but there is a better king coming. And the only one that you should lay your life down for and give your life to and base your peace upon is the king who can actually bring justice. And no other king brings justice but the one who died on the cross. 
Because at the cross you see sin fully dealt with. It is not permitted to live. It is killed. And yet at the same time, there's mercy. And because you see the two of them coming, it creates justice. The only way justice can be had in this world. Christ alone. No other worldview allows it. You go to, and we'll talk tonight if you come to the, we talk about the meaning of life and why the Christian view is better than others. It's not karma that says, no, no, you're suffering today because what happened was you, you had a bad life before and now you're paying for it. You see, it's not that. It's not Islam that says you'll never know why you suffer because it's above your, your pay grade. It's the will of Allah. It's not Buddhism that says you're not actually suffering. It's up in your head. It's an illusion. One day you'll notice, maybe, you'll get nirvana, enlightenment, and you'll realize your suffering is not real. It's not secularism that says there's no such thing as suffering. You're all going to die. You drink and be merry because the sun will one day go cold and we'll all be forgotten. It's none of those. Only Christianity comes and says the sin in the world is, not, is real, so you should be, terrified, be upset. You should weep at the tomb of people who die. But it also says that there's a God who has entered into it. He's not standing above it, but it, like Allah, but he's in the suffering. He entered into it for you, and he has dealt with it definitively and will end it forever. No other worldview offers that perspective on suffering. None. And he's found right here in this broken, weird story of Abimelech and Shechem. Let's pray.